0: This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Kyle Delhagen, the new pastor at Hamilton Union Presbyterian Church in Gilderland. Delhagen was attracted to the Gilderland Church because he wanted his family to live in a diverse community. He and his wife, Elena, have a five year old son, Atticus, and a 15 year old daughter, Juma. Juma's name is Arabic for Friday. Juma was adopted from Liberia, where Elena spent five years as a missionary, working with orphans. There are so many different points of views and styles of living out there, he said, and they're all beautiful, and they're all worthy, and they're all important. And I'm going to read you a sentence from his biography. Pastor Kyle has written, A pastor's family is as much called to a congregation as the pastor themself. So I thought I'd start by asking about your family, both the one that you came from and the one that you've created
1: um yeah yeah thank you for having me i'm uh i'm honored to be asked to and invited to be interviewed Um, so i grew up uh, as the son of a minister um and we grew up we grew up moving all over the place Uh, i was born in west michigan we lived for a time down in hudson um uh, then outside of Philadelphia, and but I really say where I grew up was outside of Rochester, um, right along the shores of Lake Ontario. Um, and I fought against going into ministry for a long time. I didn't want to. <laughs> I,
0: so you I, were kind of a rebellious uh, son. Yeah, <laughs> well, not really. You know. I,
1: um, I really just wanted, um, I didn't want to go into ministry because I saw how uh, how it can affect a pastor's family. It's a lot of stress to be kind of living in a fishbowl um people not just the moving
0: but the whole community watching you and pulteney is a really tiny place pulteneyville Pulteneyville, Uh, yeah that's
1: it there's pulteneyville which is right on lake ontario and then pulteney is a couple hours south i see okay um yeah it's um i mean i've got stories of uh embarrassing stories of my siblings, mostly, um, that uh, people were asking my parents the next day, was that your Taylor, my brother, that we saw on his bike at 11 o'clock at night? Uh, You couldn't get away with anything. (laughs) And um, so I was acutely aware of that uh, when my wife, Elena, and I started our family and what ministry would mean um, for our kids growing up. Um, So we we work really hard to try to keep them um, protected from some of the more political bureaucracy type things that can go on in a church and in any organization. Um, But we also just, we believe that uh, we are called as a family, not just me, Um, but to serve God's people and to love God's people in all of the messy beautifulness of life.
0: I love that phrase, the messy beautifulness. I wonder if there was an upside, though, to being in a fishbowl. Did you feel like you were kind of protected by a whole lot of people that most of us as children don't have looking out for us? Oh,
1: sure. Absolutely. Um, The church that I grew up in, uh, my dad, the church that my dad served the longest... Uh, up in pulteneyville was um uh, like a big family uh it's a small town uh farming community. everybody knew everybody a lot of people were related to each other um and I felt like I had a lot of moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas um and I still think of it as home. Um, I haven't lived there myself in a number of years, um, but whenever I go back, I just—it's like slipping on an old glove. You just mm. feel like, yeah, this is home. It fits. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Well, so tell us about your family now. You said yeah. you and Elena have two children.
1: Yes, we have two children. Um, we got married in uh 2015 uh in October of 2015 and uh shortly after that we found that we were pregnant with our first uh child our son Atticus uh who just turned 5 uh this past summer.
0: What a great name. Where oh, did you yeah. come up with
1: that name? So uh as you're probably familiar uh to a Mockingbird, That's what yep. I thought
0: of right away.
1: And um, Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch. Atticus is it's a big, strong name for a big personality, and he's got a big personality <laughs> it's uh It's also what we when we named him, we were very intentional about this that we wanted we wanted him to have a name that inspired him to live into the values of Atticus Finch that we m- most cherished, um, standing up for what's right, even when you know you're going to lose um being a voice for justice, um, fairness, uh, and um, and while I have not actually read um, *Go Set a Watchman*, the prequel sequel that came out a few years ago uh, by Harper Lee, um, I do know a little bit about that. In that book, the character of Atticus Finch is a little different and shows some. Um, Racist tendencies and such. Yes, and
0: I found that book rather shocking because, yeah. like you, I had held To Kill a Mockingbird yes. up on this pedestal, and then when that came out, really rather recently, it, yeah, it
1: shook me. So when when we um, when we were talking about naming him that, it was in the midst of that book having come out, and you know the struggle over the meaning of who Atticus Finch is and and that character. And we decided to name him that anyway because all of us, every single one of us, have things that we struggle with. We have times when we're not going to look very pretty, when we are going to fail. Um, And we want him to grow up knowing that that's okay. You are still beloved. And... um, So I think we've probably also made a mistake because he argues like a lawyer and he's probably (laughs) going to become a lawyer. Um, So he's five. And then um, two, just over two years ago, we finalized uh, an adoption of our daughter, Juma. Uh, Juma will be 16 in January uh, and we adopted her from the West African country of Liberia. Uh, My wife spent five years as a missionary in Liberia working with orphans and uh, orphanages and um, Juma is a girl that she had uh, gotten to know over there and she has special needs uh, and some uh, special medical care that she needs that she wasn't going to be able to get over there. And um, we found our way towards adopting her. And I can't imagine my life without her. Um, She's just an incredible young woman. She's uh, strong and smart and funny. and, um, And she's a great big sister to her little brother.
0: So that was quite a remarkable transition for her to make. How how did she cope with yeah. that? A whole different world and
1: yeah, it's um, you know the world of adoption is uh, is a unique one. Uh, it's it's something that honestly I had never thought of before, um, but uh, now I can't imagine my life without it. It's um, my wife and I have. Um, Pretty strong feelings about international adoption. That if uh, if a child can grow up in their home culture and home country, that that's the best place for them. Um, but some kids just need extra care, extra medical attention, and such. When we were when we became aware of her case, uh, we were afraid that uh, she had cancer. Um, she's blind in one eye, and there had been a discoloration in her eye that um, folks at the orphanage were afraid that it was a tumor. And that's what kind of spurred us on this journey. Um, And we knew um, it it ended up not being that, and it was something else uh, that isn't life-threatening. But we knew that the support that she would need to have a successful and full and vibrant life she wouldn't be able to get in Liberia. Um, Liberia is a very impoverished country. I think um, it usually ranks right down at the bottom with Haiti as one of the poorest countries in the world. And um, when she came home, it was um, it was a big transition for her and for us. It um, we went from having a three-year-old in the house to having a three-year-old and a thirteen-year-old. So we, <laughs> yeah. we were suddenly entering this Dude teenage the most world. Two of challenging ages for oh, any parent. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I, I just constantly remind myself every every day that she is just um, so incredibly brave and strong, and she has done so remarkably well. I'm. St- I'm so proud of her. I'm proud to be her dad.
0: Well, you sound like a wonderful family. Does her name Juma have a story with it too? Does... Uh,
1: not not like not like Atticus's. Um in uh, in Liberia there is um a pretty large uh, Muslim population and um we're pretty sure that the um uh, tribe and that she was born into was mostly Muslim. Um, And she was given the name Juma, which is uh, Arabic for Friday. Um, And I'm I'm still kind of playing with what that means for her. Um, She definitely loves her weekends. So maybe that has (laughs) something to do with it. Uh, But it's you know, I I think of Juma and it just puts a smile on my face. So Fridays always also put a smile on my face. So, you know, maybe. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So that's great. Well, what brought you to Gilderland? What brought you to Hamilton Union Presbyterian Church? Yeah.
1: um, So I had been serving a church in Palmyra uh, New York, just outside of Rochester, actually about 20 minutes south of where I grew up, and um, had been there for about four, uh, four, four and a half years. And really, this, it's the story of our adoption that led us to moving. Um, Juma, it, being from Liberia and West Africa, is black. And uh, Palmyra, is a beautiful little town, but it is very small and it's very white. And while the school system that she was in was very, very good, and I I can't sing their praises enough, um, Juma didn't see anybody who looked like her. And Elena and I want for our our kids and for our family to be in a place where we see diversity. Diversity is very important to us. We want Juma to be able to see people who look like her on a regular basis and not have it be a, um, a weird out of the blue thing. We also want Atticus to see people who don't look like him, um, because that's important. Um, I think that's one of the things that I learned in my growing up because we moved around a lot. I was exposed to a lot of different cultures and communities, and um, that's one of the one of the bright sides and the benefits to having moved around a lot is I got to experience lots of different things, um, and I learned that you know just because I look the way I do um, doesn't mean that mine is the only perspective. There are so many different uh, points of view and and styles of living out there, and they're all beautiful, and they're all worthy, and they're all um, important.
0: I like your philosophy. You mentioned something well, about <laughs> messy, beautiful. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes.
1: That's great. Well, and isn't that, isn't that community? Um, community is messy, but it is so beautiful. And that's one of the things that really drew me to uh, life in ministry is living in that messy beautifulness. Um, We're not always going to get along. We're not always going to see eye to eye, but we struggle together and we struggle to Uh, listen to what God is uh, trying to teach us and, uh, the ways that, uh, we can try to make this world, um, a little bit more kind, um, in our, uh, in our tradition, in the Presbyterian tradition, we talk about, um, trying to realize God's kingdom on earth. Um, you know, the, um, God's kingdom is not a someday, some someway, so out there, somewhere up in the sky thing. God's kingdom is present all around us right now, here, and we catch little glimpses of it. And I think we catch glimpses of it most prominently when we are in community together.
0: So is this... Were you raised, your father was a minister mm-hmm. in the Presbyterian tradition, or was it a different path you chose?
1: So, um, it's it's funny. Um, when I went to seminary, uh, in my first classes, we you do all the introducing yourself kinds of things like, Hi, my name is, and I'm here because... And every time we would do that, I would introduce myself and say, hi. Hi, I'm, I'm Kyle. Um, my grandfather was a minister. My father is a minister. I'm here because of a genetic disorder. <laughs> um, so my family actually grew up in the RCA, the Reformed Church in America. Okay. Um, and... Uh, My mom's father was an RCA uh, pastor uh, and my dad was a pastor in the RCA. I actually grew up in and was ordained in the RCA, in the Reformed Church. Um, My dad uh, went to work for the Presbyterian Church USA um, back in 2012, 2013 or so, I, I a little fuzzy on when that was. And uh, it was because he went to the Presbyterian Church that I was introduced to the Presbyterian world. And um, I found the Presbyterian uh, Church to be much, m- much bigger, much more expansive, um, much, um, much more tuned into. Um, issues of justice that were passionate to my heart. Um, The RCA is uh, one of the oldest denominations in the country, uh, but it's very small. And while there are lots of people in it that I love uh, and still love, um, it is still wrestling through and, um, and in some ways tearing itself apart over issues of human sexuality. And I was just very tired with that that, uh, struggle. And um, the Presbyterian Church, on the other hand, was offering opportunities for me to uh, participate in anti-racism trainings, um, to talk about uh, how we can uh, address the struggle for immigration reform. Not to say that the issue uh, over human sexuality and LGBTQIA issues isn't still present in uh, the PCUSA as a denomination. Um, It is uh, it is not the it's not the elephant that's taking up all the oxygen in the room. Um, And so I f- have found uh, myself to be adopted into this denomination uh, and I love it here it's um, it's a really it's a wonderful church and I'm really excited uh, by uh, the future that ministry within the denomination holds for me
0: yes well I looked up a bit about um, the Presbyterian Church USA mm-hmm. and and was thrilled to see that it, quote, affirms its responsibility to speak on social and moral issues because it seems, in so many ways, our country has been so torn apart. (laughs) And it just seems, I, looking through some of the um, documents that was posted on the um, website, It was ahead of so much, like with Roe v. Wade being on all of our minds, having just been at the Supreme Court, still not decided. That was in 1973. And Presbyterian Church USA in 1970 um, declared, and this is a quote, the artificial or induced Termination of a pregnancy is a matter of careful ethical decision of the patient, and therefore should not be restricted by law. So, what a heritage to yeah, have!
1: Yeah, it's um, and, and I and I do have to say that um, the RCA also has um, has some really amazing roots in. Um, in the struggle for justice as well. Um, the uh, the fight against apartheid in South Africa, uh, for example, was one that the RCA was a leader on, um, especially in the uh, role that divestment played in bringing down the uh, apartheid regime. Um, and so I feel like the, um, but they've also, gotten wrapped up in this one argument that just keeps roiling over and over, the Presbyterian Church, like you said, does have this wonderful, rich tradition. Um, And I think that we've got just so much important work that if we allow ourselves to be bogged down by any one issue, um, we risk limiting ourselves in our scope and what we're going to be able to do. Uh, the One of the uh, initiatives and visions uh, that the denomination has put out in the past couple of years is the Matthew 25 vision. Uh, Matthew chapter 25 is where Jesus uh, tells the parable of the sheep and the goats and um Jesus talks about that day of judgment when God is going to separate out um, the peoples and um, put at his right hand um, those who um, who did God's will and at his left hand, those who didn't. And he says, you know, you who, um, you fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. You visited me when I was sick and in prison. And the people say, when did, when did we do that, Jesus? (laughs) And, and he says, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Um, the Matthew twenty five vision is um, has three components. One, it is to uh, address uh, and, dis- and seek to dismantle uh, systemic racism. Um, seek to uh, address uh, structural poverty, um, and all in an effort to engage in congregational vitality. Uh, on November twenty first uh, just a few weeks ago our congregation committed to become a matthew twenty five church and i have I am just so proud that we have taken that step it's going to be a struggle it's going to be it's going to mean a lot of learning um, what will it involve just So um, one of the things that we're uh, looking at, and our mission team actually meets uh, in one week for our monthly meeting, we're going to talk about what our focus for the next year is going to be. This year, we've been focusing on hunger. So every month, we've been looking at a different uh, organization or a different effort um, that seeks to address hunger in the world uh, and in our community. Uh, One of those has been the food pantry in Gilderland. Um, another has been uh, consistent monthly work with the regional food bank. Um, one has been working to build an ark through Heifer International. That's uh, five thousand dollars that fills a, a metaphorical ark with cows and chickens and goats uh, to uh, help people in around the world uh, work. Uh, out of poverty. Uh, we filled an arc and we've still got money coming in and I'm so proud of that. Um, this coming year, we're looking at focusing on poverty. And um, one of the things that I, I really want to see if we can, um, I want to challenge my congregation and our community uh, it, to do is to look at how issues of race and gender and um, economics intersect in uh, in creating systems of poverty. Um, poverty is one of is a complicated issue that uh, is exacerbated by uh, by race, by gender. Um, women of color are the most at risk of living in poverty um and that is something that we want to look at um we don't know exactly what that's going to look like yet um the team still has work to do um but i'm my vision is that each month that we focus on a different uh, project, that we will, at the same time, have learning opportunities so that we can learn about what what are the different issues going on here that are creating these these issues of poverty. There's a saying uh, that uh, if a fish washes up on the shore, one might ask, what's wrong with the fish? If a bunch of fish wash up on the shore, you have to ask, what's wrong with the water? Um, And poverty is one of those issues that churches and society tend to focus on the individual and addressing specific individual needs, which is important. But we also have to ask the questions of what is keeping these people in these situations? What are the circumstances that are being created to maintain these poverty levels? Uh, And in an age when uh, the gap between wealthy and poor is continuing to widen at a at the size of a canyon, uh, we really need to address those uh, those systems head on and be willing to ask the hard questions.
0: Well, as you said, in describing the Matthew 25 vision, it has to do with dismantling structural racism yeah. and, and poverty that's also part of a structure. So that's yeah. a really heroic effort. I'm hoping that well, I one also, church, <laughs> a David and Goliath battle can well, make a I difference. also
1: remind people um, of a sermon that a, a supervisor of mine once gave that uh, it's very easy to look at everything going on in the world and get completely overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Um, That we are not going to fix what's wrong in the world, especially overnight, probably not even in our lifetimes. But that doesn't uh, absolve us or excuse us from doing the hard work.
0: Dorothy Day, one brick at a time.
1: Uh, Yeah, oh, Dorothy Day, she was fantastic.
0: (laughs) So I had so many questions I wanted to ask you, but here's one that Twitter, your Twitter account, you describe yourself as father, we've been over that, coffee, I don't think we need to address, (laughs) Um, pastor, Mm. we're into that, poet, Mm. tell me about being a poet.
1: Yeah, um... So it's a, it's a title that I strive to live into. Um, so my, oh, feels like a former life at this point. When I was in college, um, I went to Hope College in Holland, Michigan, a uh, small liberal arts um, reformed church in America school. And uh, when I was there... I was really drawn there because of one professor. His name is Jack Riddle. Uh, he's since retired, but he's a poet, uh, and he was an English writing professor. Uh, I think I took every class that he offered while I was there. And he was my advisor. Um, his poetry classes, poetry writing classes that I took, were some of my favorites. Um, and. Of course, now I go back and look at my poetry from those classes, and I cringe um, because they're really angsty and you know teenage and <laughs> and I'll, I I I should probably just burn them all. Um, but uh, writing and creative writing is one of the things that um, I've actually found that I use the most in ministry. Um, And I look at my sermons and my sermon writing uh, through a creative lens. Um, I really, I love the entire art form of a sermon, from sitting down with a text, uh, wrestling with it, uh, looking at what other people have said, and then trying to pull something out that is... um, Hopefully uh, relevant and new and inspiring. Um, so
0: let me interrupt. Do yeah. you write a new sermon every week? Just about. That must be exhausting. It can be. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's um but it's also really um invigorating um and a lot of fun because I approach it through the lens of poetry and um, uh, creative creating, creative everything. Um, I think it was uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, um, and I, I could be wrong on that, so don't quote me, uh, who said something about the pastor or the preacher being uh, the poet in the pulpit. Uh, and that's kind of what I, what I strive to do, um, because I think poetry speaks to us in ways that is um, it's just unique, and it, it speaks to us in, in, a, in a way that no other art form can. I mean, you can look at a painting and be inspired in one particular way, but, and music in a different way, and you feel that, but poetry is something different entirely, and I just, I'm in love with it. I'm in love with words.
0: That's great. I mean, yeah. I'd just like to have you, if you could, walk through the process. Because here, you must yeah. be dealing with the Word of God on the one uh-huh. hand, because you've got the text of the Bible, yeah. and then you've got this tradition of poetry from your Jack Riddle mm-hmm. professor, and yeah. your own views, and you're clearly influenced by literature enough yeah. to name your son yes. after <laughs> a fictional character. Yeah. So when you go to sit down and write a sermon, yeah. like what, how, just, how does that unfold? Yeah. Do you do it on a keyboard? Do you do it by hand? So do you I, have the Bible spread out? What, like, what, Just describe us.
1: Well, my desk is a disaster. So I've got, <laughs> I've got books open all over the place, and my desk is just—it it looks like a tornado has touched down. Um, usually how I start is um, I select the text, and I usually follow the lectionary, the Revised Common Lectionary, um, and which— Works better for me because I was the type of student who, if a professor told me to just write a paper on any topic I wanted, my head would explode because I wouldn't be able to decide. So, but if they gave me an assignment saying, you have to write a paper on X, Y, and Z, I was, okay, now I know what to do. Um, So by going by the lectionary, um, I do, it does a couple of things. It gives me a structure that I can follow. But it also forces me to approach some texts that I might otherwise not think of or be much more comfortable ignoring. Um, And I'm I'm at a loss of thinking of what text that might be. But um, so I I sit down with it. I read it. I let it speak to me. Um, The prayer that is on my lips throughout my sermon writing process is, Lord, Your words, not mine. Um, And I, I make some notes. I ask questions about the text. Um, I try to um, read between the lines. uh, Something that I learned in my literature classes. You know how to, how to read what's there that's not there. So, you know, you read what's on the page, but then you have to infer a lot of other things, and and sometimes that means going back to the original Hebrew or the original Greek, of which I am not very good. Uh, I passed my exams and then qu- promptly forgot them, but I have lots of sources and um, people in my life that do know those things, and I go to them. and. Um, and then I let it sit for a day or or two, and I just let it simmer. Um, it's in the back of my mind when I'm uh, filling up the, uh, the car at the gas station, um, when I'm getting my son off the bus at the end of the day. Uh, it's just, it's simmering. And then I sit down and I try to have a nugget that I start from, a starting point. Um, If I'm having trouble with that, then I go to commentaries and um, articles that people have written about the text to try to parse out a little bit of um, uh, wisdom or insight. Uh, And I I just let it go from there. But that prayer, Lord, your words... Not mine is on my lips throughout the whole process, and even into the pulpit on Sunday morning. Because, so you feel
0: like he comes like yeah. right through you. Yeah. oh my
1: there are um, there are m- multiple occasions that I can think of when i'm when I'm preaching because um, a sermon, y- you can read it and I write in manuscript form. Um, but a sermon has to be preached, and there have been multiple times when I'm standing in the pulpit, and I'm sharing a word, and I feel that liminal space open up. That space between heaven and earth just becomes razor thin, and I feel this, the spirit just lighting up on, on my shoulders, and I'm like, okay, I know that this is truth. And this truth is good. And I hope that somebody's listening.
0: Wow. What an inspirational description of preaching. Um, And I know I should let you go, but I had so many more things I wanted to ask. And one of them was, in your biography, you wrote about how, I think it was in your youth probably, you had worked with AIDS patients, you had Mm. worked with homeless, you had worked with hungry. And also, right after seminary, you spent a year as a chaplain in a hospital in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And maybe just to close out, because right now, I mean, every week we write obituaries. And just with the isolation that's come with the pandemic and not just the added deaths, but the added miseries, I just thought it might be good to hear some of the things you had learned from that experience.
1: Yeah, I was, uh, I spent uh, a year as a chaplain resident at Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, um, which it's the roughest part of town. Uh, Einstein is a trauma one center, which means the worst of the worst comes there. Car accidents, medical emergencies, gunshots. It was the hardest um, and best year of my life um, until I had kids. Well, until I got married and had kids. Um, It was a really hard year, but it was so incredibly inspiring. Um, When you walk with people in the most dire of circumstances, when you're holding the hand of a mother whose son has been killed by a gun, Um, when you are talking with the family of a young man who died from um, some kind of infection, Um, when you're walking with a family whose... Uh, saying goodbye to their 90-year-old, um, patriarch, uh, it is incredibly humbling, um, and it is incredibly intimate, and it's just so special to be able to do that, um, this year, this past two years, almost, uh, has been, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, the hardest two years that any of us have ever experienced. You said it, isolating. Um, it, it's been traumatizing. Uh, and I, I h- hope that it has taught us to be a little kinder and a little softer with one another. Um I don't know that it has, Um, but if there's anything that I learned from my time in chaplaincy, it's that um, we who are in ministry, uh, we carry with us the presence of God, whether we acknowledge it or not. Uh, so when I walk into a room, when I go visit, um, I wear my collar, um, when I go visit shut-ins or go to the hospital, um, because it is, it's the mantle. I have taken the mantle on myself, um, that mantle of responsibility that is equal parts heavy and, and honoring, um, it is, it is a heavy calling, but to walk with people in those circumstances is just so, it's special. Um, these, these two years, through COVID and through um, the racial reckoning that has been taking place in our nation, um, we have a long way to go, but... We also need to recognize the humanity in one another, and um, I don't know how to I don't know how to do that other than just doing it. Um, it's it's almost something you can't teach with words uh, or explain with words. You have, just have to live it and show it.
0: Recognizing the humanity in one another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is a wonderful thought to end with. Unless you have something else that you'd like to add?
1: No, I um, I'm, I'm so excited to be in this community. Um, Does to- it have
0: the diversity that you? You saw Pragjuma? Yes. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah. Is she at the, is she in the Gilderland school?
1: No, we actually landed in uh-huh. Um We found a place over there um, that we are renting right now, and she's at the high school there, and our son is in kindergarten. Um, and uh, but but there and here, uh, we have found the diversity that we were hoping for, uh-huh. and um, uh, I'm you know, I've been, I was just installed at the end of October, but I've been here now for just about a little over six months. And um, I'm just so enjoying getting to know this community. And I'm looking forward to meeting more folks uh, in, uh, in, who are in leadership here, um, who live in this community. And I'm, I'm excited to learn about what makes Gilderland Gilderland and Altamont and this capital district. Um, and uh, seeing how we can cooperate and collaborate on um, on lifting people up and showing a little bit of hope.